So since I'm the moderator, I'm going to um, go ahead and take this opportunity to, to ask the first question, and then I'll uh, open it up to the audience. I'm not sure how long we have. But um, the uh, I have a question to sort of bridge these two presentations. In, and then I'm going to start with Nick, and then John also, if you could perhaps comment on it. John set up three um, really quite dramatic uh, scenarios, and the underlying uh, premise, I think he said, was that it's the population bomb that is really underlying what's going on here. And Nick, with your adaptive management scene, you said it was, the, it was critical to find out not only what the direct threats, but the indirect threats to the parks are. And I would surmise from what John said that he thinks that the population explosion is probably an indirect, if not direct, threat. Nick, I would ask you, how would you actually go about testing whether that were, in fact, the case in those three scenarios, or any of those three scenarios? How would you um, use your process to really look at what those threats might actually be? Uh, typical threats assessment involves sitting down and looking, you first have to define the area that you care about. So what's the spatial area? Parks is pretty much the park boundaries or maybe like the broader buffer zones. And then the next step is to really think about what are the biodiversity targets that represent the overall biodiversity of that site? And then you try to brainstorm using that conceptual model. Well, I think biodiversity is in this Indonesia case, it's being driven by oil palm. But where is oil palm coming from? Is that government policy or is that is that oil palm by large corporate interests, in which case population may or may not be relevant, or is it by smallholders, in which case the population boom may be relevant? So it's just trying to, it's not rocket science, but it's just laying out what you think goes on at your site using these logic chains. And they can be pretty simple to sort of say, in this case, we think it's being driven by corporate interest, population isn't an issue. Or in this case, it's being driven by smallholders who need to feed their families. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. I, that at that national park, I went out with those loggers that you know, lived in the villages and helped people cut down trees in that park. I mean, you, you understand why they do it, but you have to understand those incentives if you have any prayer of trying to overcome it. John, how do you, um, as you said, you think that population um, bomb is responsible for all three of these. Do you want to um, expand a little bit, sort of in, in uh, terms of what Nick said, or exactly how you draw that linkage? Nothing simple out there, and uh, I think Nick's made that point very well. Uh, population lies at the roots of, of, a, of a lot of environmental degradation, both within and outside parks, but um, there are other factors that, that come to bear on it, and uh, I, I like to draw again from the Parks Watch experience. Uh, we have our our Southern Cone program, Chile and Argentina. Well, uh, if you go to the parks in Chile and Argentina, um, you soon discover that the problems they have with parks in Chile and Argentina are all the same problems that we have with parks here in the United States. The budget isn't big enough. The infrastructure's deteriorating because the maintenance isn't, isn't frequent enough. Um, they're, they have, they're overloaded with, with tourists and visitors. They have problems managing the flow of people and cleaning up after them. Uh, the same kinds of problems we have in our park. This idea that they're going to be gangs of, of the people uh, operating outside the law, the clear-cutting of parks, that, that doesn't, 
enter the picture in the least degree at all. All you have to do is move to the next two countries, the border on Argentina to the north, Paraguay and Bolivia. You're in a different world. Uh, land rights aren't defined. Uh, the governments are incredibly weak. They have laws on the books, but they have no capacity to, to implement those laws. So, uh, and furthermore, and perhaps worst of all, uh, a frontier mentality persists uh, in which uh, resources are out there for the guy who gets there first and grabs them before the next one does. Um, and so these open access resource regimes uh, foster and encourage uh, the kinds of violations of parks that that I demonstrated in, in the examples I gave you. Um, we saw it in one of the earlier talks here, uh, the example of the Murex fishery in the Gulf of California. It worked beautifully well as long as the local people had complete charge of what happened. But as soon as other people got into it, there was no mechanism to prevent that from happening. So uh, he concluded, and I would include along with him, you've got to have the top down there too. Otherwise, some gangsters that you didn't think about at first will come in and, and take what you have. So uh, there has to be that top-down. Okay, are there other questions? Uh... I have a comment. I just want to teach some other argument to what uh, John presented to us. Because it was, for me, quite um, interesting. No, when we yeah, when we were John negotiating the Convention on Biodiversity that was uh, eventually approved in the World uh, Summit in Rio '92, there was a big pressure from developing developed nation developing nation to increase the protected areas, and there was a big big commitment that uh, at that time probably 80 percent of the protected areas were in the north, and. Uh, Basically, all tropical countries agree to increase, to create, in many cases, or to increase uh, protected areas in the tropics based on aid, financial and technical aid for those countries. And they set a target uh, after Rio 92 in the World Park Congress in um, Caracas, Venezuela, of increasing protected areas up to 10%. And yet, tropical countries, uh, one way or another, fulfill that political commitment by increasing uh, or creating protected areas uh, in all of their countries. Um, in the World Park Congress in Durban in 2003, we measured the advance in what we, was done, and it dramatically changed. Now 80% of the protected areas are in the south, uh, uh, but we never received uh, the resources and the technical aid that uh, was negotiated. That's why we have so many paper parks. I know very well the case of Laguna del Tigre. I've been there quite a lot of times and it's incredibly sad to see what's going on. And the same thing everywhere. No countries outside of that thing. Venezuela. Uh, even Costa Rica, which is a world famous for its parks. Most of the parks in Costa Rica are paper parks. And you can imagine the same thing all over the tropics. Latin America, in Africa, Southeast Asia. So I think that um, the, 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 there's a big need to understand that uh, in some cases we have a big political will and commitment for major decision making heads of states and president, but we were not able to bring on resources to really uh, uh, give the opportunity for those countries uh, to have capacity to manage and administrate uh, those resources because, as you say, many countries those have their, still have their vision of a frontier. 
that uh, this is an uh, open, open land for anybody who wants to colonize it. And, and the, the lack of resources is very important. I think that, um, that there's a big need of resources and in, uh, instrument institution that can, you know, really administrate all resources. Endowment funds are a good instrument for administrating protected areas. But nobody, uh, nobody puts resources anymore in the endowment for, for protected areas. That's a big problem that we have to deal with in, in the tropics. So I need that uh, this issue has been also uh, hasn't been able to put it as a priority because there's other major environmental problems coming into which is climate change and you know production and consumption of natural resources and I don't see this as a major issue that has been properly addressed at political level because we talk about you know loss of biodiversity, the hotspots, the wilderness areas, key biodiversity areas, but. We haven't been able to move forward uh, in managing those protected areas in those countries where there were political will, but probably that political will will not last forever, and we will see oil and gas, open feed mining in many of those protected areas because those protected areas are not going to fulfill what we present to those head of states at that uh, specific time. Comments? No, take a stance. I think uh, just to comment on that, that, that there has been a considerable increase in the amount of inter international spending on, on parks, but uh, uh, this could get us into another long discussion, but uh, the, the fact is that a great deal of it has been misspent, misdirected, spent under, under mistaken premises. I just mentioned Laguna del Tigre because there were millions of dollars spent on Laguna del Tigre and then you see what happened. Those millions of dollars had absolutely no effect whatsoever. And if you went back with 2020 hindsight and say, well, how might those millions of dollars have been spent to greater effect, uh, you would come out with a program very, very different from the one that was actually uh, implemented. So, uh, John, in your, I think one of your very first slides, you showed um, the parks in the western US. and you basically wrote off the, the national forests and other federal lands as providing not as good um, protection. And what struck me about that is by focusing on parks, and I think of the original meaning of park, which as we're using it really as a biodiversity refuge, but the original implication of, of a park was an area of some sort of beauty that was for human enjoyment, I think Central Park, Neighborhood Park, um, national parks and thinking of parks, I'm trying to pull this together, parks that have worked relatively well and haven't, I, where I see parks working to actually conserve are the ones that really the focus, the protection is there not because there are people coming and enjoying it and essentially the use of the park provides the um, provides the protection and I'm, I'm wondering if when you see these huge areas that have been designated but imperfectly conserved whether a more modest strategy with 2020 hindsight might have been better in focusing on, on smaller areas that were actually able to be not only designated but put in some infrastructure so that people could use it and actually provide some sort of um, something realistically defensible. <laughs> I'm um, trying to pull. Oh. 
there's, a, there's a, now a very substantial body of scientific literature that says that small parks are biologically uh, inviolable and that uh, large parks are needed to conserve the web of interactions that in fact is, is the biological mechanism that maintains biodiversity. So uh, I'm not saying that these two uh, notions are incompatible, and, and what I feel is that uh, if, if you read the registers of the, of the WCMC, the World uh, uh, Con Conservation Monitoring Center, there are thousands of protected areas around the world, thousands of them. And far more, uh, now you were saying that too, far more than there's capacity to, to implement in a, in a satisfactory way. So have we, have we gone over our goal? Um, that's, a, that's a decision society has to make. But. But let me just add a, a, a bit of a diversion from this, but going back to the U.S. case, and I think it's a very good point to bring up that just not just our national parks are the only protected areas of any significance in the U.S. In particular, we rarely look at the um, Department of Defense lands, but my understanding is, I, my recollection is that's about 3% of the uh, land area of the U.S., and in fact that some of the best conserved lands in, in the country. Because, you know, if you think of it, they've got a missile in the middle of a big piece of land. Department of Defense is very good at keeping, <laughs> keeping the buffer zone quite protected or, or whatever it's for. And so not, of course, all DOD land is not foreseen by any regards. But there is a whole sort of now of different types of protection, some of which works very well, some, you know, uh, land from, uh, say, the Forest Service is, is really in very poor shape, but some of it is, is beautiful. And so it's, it gets quite complicated. It's not just as simple as looking at just parks. Other questions? Five minutes, so we have time for a couple more questions. Great okay, um, questions. I have a question, um, I guess, about sort of, I know I, I took the Bob Healy's class last year on parks and protected areas, and we talked a lot about sort of these different challenges of, on the one hand, small economic development that winds up over time kind of eating away at a protected area versus some of these larger forces like in the case of Borneo where you had probably small actors coming in in response to a political people. But I guess like I hope the interest of, of microfinance and sort of how do you how do you deal with people who live in protected areas already who don't have other economic opportunities aside from uh, to some cases, utilizing the resources around them. And do you see that um, question of finding economic, uh, sustainable um, opportunities for those people as important to this in this larger framework of figuring out the protectors' problem, or do you think that problem is sort of lower on the scale as compared to some of these bigger issues? Nick, that's yours. Yeah, that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of an easy answer. I'm going to say it depends, and it, it depends on your local situation. And you know, there are many parts where it's not an issue, and so you don't have to deal with it. But if you're if you're facing, you've done your threats analysis, and one of the problems is you have hunting or subsistence agriculture from the people who live there, then you certainly have to figure out how to deal with those people. And you can decide that you want to work adversarily and you want to round them up at gunpoint and kick them out, or you could pay them all $50,000 and let them move to Los Angeles where they'd have a happy middle-class existence, or you could try to work out sustainable harvesting of the resource or set up all these tourist guides. In the abstract, I can't tell you which of those strategies is gonna work, but I can tell you that if you identify them, you look at what are the drivers of them, you work with them, you talk with them, 
you're going to have to, as the manager, come up with the best practical solution to deal with that issue at your particular site. And so, yeah, you can't ignore the local stakeholders. And I, I really want to be clear, my, my emphasis on the goal parks, in this case, might be biodiversity conservation. That doesn't mean you can ignore local people. It doesn't mean you can't you, you can't work with them. And often they're the best. I'm working with a whole network of projects out in Fiji and elsewhere where it's locally managed marine areas. They're setting up the marine areas. They own them. They operate them, and they're they're, they're benefiting from them. It, it just it depends on who you are, what your conditions are. I think we have time for probably one more question. Question about population in parks. I mean, I was reading about parks in East Africa. Basically, once the parks were formed, you had huge concentrations of population, human populations outside the park boundaries. Some were living with the ecotourism trade, but most of them were clearing the land for their own agricultural purposes. So you had these island parks with migrating animals, and the net result was you had a reduction in biodiversity. And I just wondered how you would address that. The park itself is protected but because the human population would be outside the park boundaries, men over the long run would lose the species. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> I was just talking to someone, I went to one of these African parks where, you know, inside you have lions and wildebeest and they're walking around, you get the fence and then you have sugar cane all outside. It's almost like a zoo. I mean, it is a zoo. They're, they're flying animals around to get genetic diversity, you know, and they're managing it the way you would manage a zoo. Maybe that's the future of some of these things. I mean, I'd like to believe that, and I think this is the brilliance of the Wilderness Project, that we have this vision of kind of over long terms, rewilding things and making those connections that we can get through this critical human development phase, we may be able to get to that other side. But it's a race, it's hard, and it's we're losing. I mean, it's and it's, it's just have to look at the demographics and the thousands and billions and billions of people. It's, it's a tough thing to do. But that doesn't mean we give up, and I think we use the tools we have to try to hold on to where we can. Another comment to make on that, though, is many of the parks, especially ones in East Africa, which tend to be quite old parks, were set up before there was much biological information. They were really set up as, as uh, focal points for tourism in that part of the world uh, with, with only secondary considerations about conserving the, the ecosystems that were represented in those, in those parks. I just read an article within the last week uh, about attempts now underway in Kenya to try to connect Nairobi National Park, which is right on the outskirts of Nairobi. You could be in that park and you see skyscrapers just across the fence. Um, Nairobi's wildlife migrates, wildebeest and zebra, these migratory ungulates, and they move south down to uh, Maasai Mara and Amboseli. And uh, so now, this is years and years later, uh, they realized that the to keep the wildlife spectacle in Nairobi Park, they have to create corridors and connections. And so there's, there's efforts underway to try to try to remedy what was an oversight in the original. original. One of the most interesting um, locations where this is they've been working on this for really close to 50 years is actually in South Africa, which is um, adopted adaptive management well beyond really it became popular in the rest of the world. And Kruger National Park is their big, the big gem in South Africa. And they've been looking at these questions for decades and decades. And there really has been this shift from initially that it was very much, the goal was very much focused on tourism and uh, animal viewing. Mm -hmm. And now they're going back and um, looking at some of the things that were set in place decades ago, such as setting up little 
watering holes to bring certain wildlife, which it turns out has pushed out other wildlife. And so there are, there is data out there, and there are scientists looking at it as well as particular managers. But it's a big, big topic. And on that note, I think we will. Uh, well, I'll hand it back over to the organizers. All right, I need a round of applause for our panel.